Jesus is born. What a joyful and wonderful thing that is. I don't know if you can hear me. Did my microphone get turned off? Oh, there it is. Jesus is born, friends, and what a wonderful and joyous thing that is. Let us pray. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Friends, how close is it that we can be to Christmas but still miss it when it comes? There is a nativity scene at one of the yards in the neighborhood that has caught my eye over the evenings these past few weeks as I've been walking my dog under the cover of darkness with the twinkling of stars overhead. Sometimes there's a a soft crunching of snow underneath and you can see this nativity scene from half a street away. It's lit from the front with a spotlight that throws this big and magnificent shadow backward onto the front of the house. And so this is what you see as you're coming down the road, the shadow of a massive stable scene. There's the towering figures of Mary and Joseph leaning lovingly and protectively over a manger where you can see just the hint of a baby's face looking back up at them. There's the silhouette of a star above them and an angel playing trumpet off to the side and is all painted in these wondrous brushstrokes of light and darkness. I have found it awe-inspiring, breathtaking, striking, and magnificent. But there's an interesting thing that happens every time when I see it, which is that when I get closer, the shadows fade to the background and I discover that the scene itself, the actual Mary and Jesus and Joseph and uh, being illuminated by the spotlight, are so small They're just a foot or two tall, maybe, not even up to my knees. And so it seems inconsistent, startling, to discover that such a far-reaching shadow can be cast by something so small and unimposing. This is perhaps the story of Christmas. It casts a long shadow in both directions in history. The prophets had been writing about the coming of a king and the birth of a Messiah for centuries before that quiet day in Bethlehem. And we have marveled at God's wondrous arrival as a child in this world for the 2,000 years since. And so it didn't take long before the entire history of the world was split in that moment between the time before Christ came and the time after. In a Christmas sermon written just 400 years after Christ's birth, St. John Chrysostom described the magnitude of this single moment, saying, For this day, the ancient slavery is ended, the devil confounded, the demons take to flight, the power of death is broken. For this day, paradise is unlocked, the curse is taken away, sin is removed, error driven out, the truth has been brought back, the speech of kindness diffused and spread on every side, a heavenly way of life has been implanted on the earth, angels communicate with, them, with men without fear, and we now hold speech with angels." All of this is a mighty shadow cast from a night that the gospel of Luke sums up in two sentences. The time came for Mary to give birth to a child, and she did, laying him in a manger. The whole story, from the journey to Bethlehem through to the angels and the shepherds, is shorter than the average children's book. It is an unimposing moment as we walk by. We could be part of the story and still miss it happening right in front of us. At least I think that I could, because I think I know exactly what part I would play in the Christmas story. 
We had an impromptu Christmas pageant in worship this past Sunday, and as I was assigning parts, an eight-year-old young man came up to me and let me know that he wanted to be Jesus. Well, don't we all? But I told him we already have a Jesus. Jesus that Sunday was a baby doll wrapped up and waiting for us in the manger, but the same, I suppose, is true any other day of the week. We already have a Jesus. We're called to be like Jesus, but not take his place. As they say in recovery communities, there is a God, and it's not me. There's already a Jesus, and so the young man happily took the role of Joseph, followed the angel's instructions all the way to Bethlehem. Friends, I admire Joseph's steady faith and quiet assurance, and I marvel at Mary's bravery and fortitude, joyfully stepping into the story of salvation as the mother of God with us. But neither seems quite the right part in the pageant for me. And I'm not sure I can see myself as an angel singing on high or as one of the shepherds witnessing the display. I'm not an animal or a little drummer boy. I'm not even one of the magi coming from a distance or even the star they follow. Friends, I can be the innkeeper. I know how to be the innkeeper. Now, the innkeeper doesn't always make the cast of characters. If you'd like to be a Grinch at any Christmas parties you're going to this year, you can point out that there is no innkeeper in the Gospel of Luke, and that in many translations of the Bible, they don't even talk about an inn. It's likely that Mary and Joseph would have looked for lodging with family and distant relatives there in Bethlehem, only to find that everyone's guest rooms were already filled with the travelers who'd gotten there before them. Visitors to Bethlehem today are led into an ancient cave, where there's a silver star inlaid on the floor that is said to mark the spot where Jesus was born. The innkeeper, with his inn, with that small wooden stable out back, is probably more tradition than history. Which is fine, that's fine with me, but I'd still like to include him in the story. Because then, there can be a part for me to play. See, I was introduced to the innkeeper once in a sermon by Frederick Buchner, one that I had read, just picked up, and found that it had struck me in an incredible way. He had, in this sermon, developed the character of the innkeeper from his single line, there's no room, into this full-fledged person. And I was struck by how alike we were. Some make the innkeeper out to be the villain of the story, but I don't think that's the case. So let me tell you his, or our, story. The innkeeper was a practical man. He was tied up in the realities of his everyday life. See, an inn and a family and a life can't run themselves. Someone had to keep the linens fresh. Someone had to keep the beds made. Someone needed to manage the accounts and handle reservations. There always needed to be something to eat for breakfast and lunches to be packed to send with the kids to school. And if everything ever seemed set for a moment, well, then there were always things to do for tomorrow. The innkeeper lived in a never-ending parade of tasks to complete, abiding by routine and adhering to schedules, getting by from day to day. It was an honest existence, if a bit plain. If the beauty of the world had faded around him, the innkeeper probably would not have noticed. There was just no good time for wondering or dreaming, No reason to loiter on anything so insignificant that it might just leave him behind on the more important things to do. So when that knock came on his door one unremarkable evening, it was an interruption. He was in the middle of something, though he wouldn't remember exactly what in the years to come. He would remember how the travelers looked standing there on his doorstep, road-weary, dust-covered. The woman was grimacing with the posture of the very, very pregnant. And the man had this desperate 
and not altogether hopeful look as he asked for a place to stay. There was none. The inn was full, which was a convenient truth for the innkeeper because he wasn't entirely sure he would have given them a room if he had had one. They had that look, you know, that clumsy silence that lingers in the conversation when someone asks for help that they can't pay back. The innkeeper offered them the stable, if just to keep them off the streets, but really off the doorsteps of his neighbors, figuring that people like that would be more at home with the animals anyway. He didn't think it was a very generous gesture. It was just enough to keep his conscience clear and let him go back to work. So when the, when the couple made their way to the back of his property, the innkeeper didn't follow them. He noticed the stars for a moment. It was a clear night and the stars were twinkling, but he really didn't have time to pause and take in the silence of that still night. He closed his door and returned to his work. And when the woman went into labor that night, he wasn't listening and he didn't hear. When the newborn child announced his arrival with a wail and a scream while the animals stirred, but the innkeeper didn't hear because he wasn't listening. He learned later that there was this choir of angels two fields down from him that spent like a half hour singing about a king being born in his stable. And it was odd, he would think, when he heard this, that the bearers of a king wouldn't have met him with some sort of demanding decree for a place to stay and instead would just have a quiet question for him. When Caesar Augustus, king of the land, decided that everyone needed to be counted for that census, it was never a question that anyone could say no to. And so the people did as they were told. And the innkeeper would have done as he was told if anyone had told him. How close can we come to Christmas but still miss it when it comes? No one ever told the innkeeper what to do, but there was a shepherd who ran past his window late that night, it woke him from his sleep. This shepherd was singing and shouting joy and celebration, and it caught the innkeeper so off guard, so surprised that anyone could find a reason to be so joyful in this life, especially a life that leaves you to sleep in the fields with the sheep, baking under the sun and rotting in the rain. But the innkeeper was stirred from his sleep and couldn't go back to sleep and found that he may well have been stirred from a sleep that stretched deep into his heart. He found himself thinking about this pregnant woman and the child that had probably been born that night. He would think later that maybe he had spent his whole life waiting for love to find him, to draw his heart from this dreary life into the next, only to find his heart broken and drawn into the fullness of the life he was living. The family was going to need extra sheets, he thought. Well, and maybe a bit of bread and wine. It could be a long night for them. And he could do that. So he he gathered up his things and he took it out to the family. It was a small gesture, giving just a bit of what he already had on an ordinary night. And so it surprised him to find that he received back far more in return. And that one ordinary night became a holy and exceptional one in his memory. The poet Mary Oliver once wrote, I tell you this, to break your heart, by which I mean that it break open and never close again to the rest of the world. I imagine that in the years to come, the innkeeper would tell this story of an ordinary night that wasn't. 
He would tell the story of a heart broken open and a life forever changed, his, on both accounts. He would invite everyone he knew to be listening for a knocking. Sometimes he would tell them God might show up asking for a room and a place to stay and nothing to offer in return. Just open the door. Let them in. It might be that the one with nothing to offer has everything to give. And sometimes he would say, love might knock on your door, hungry and cold and tired. Open your heart. Let them in. It might be the moment that changes the entire course of history and the whole world at once. And even if not, it might still be a moment that could leave each of us forever changed. Thanks be to God. Amen. Friends, I'd like to invite us as we continue in worship to stand as you are able to sing together, Angels We Have Heard on High.